can I say something like truly horrifying before we start? Yeah. This morning at 5 a.m., my daughter, my three-year-old, called me into her bedroom. What? And when I went in there, she goes, Daddy, <gasps> there's a man in here and he's trying to talk to me. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> I will say I've never felt like this, this apartment is haunted. I've been in places that I have felt were haunted, but I, I've never felt that about this place. Well, until now. <laughs> <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. Hi, Jillian Pensavale. Hey, Patrick Hines. Um, hi, listeners. Hi. You guys, welcome to the very first episode of True Crime Obsessed. It's happening. I have wanted to make this podcast forever. So I guess we should start by telling the listeners a little bit about who we are with the promise that we will never do this again. Like, yes. we're not going to be one of those podcasts where we talk about ourselves. No, maybe just our opinion on how scary something is and how it's giving us nightmares. But other than that, we're going to introduce you to us right now. And then who are you? What do you do? Me? Yeah. I'm. My name is Jillian. I'm a podcaster. What's your podcast called? My podcast is called The Hamilcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Hamilcast. This is episode four. What? Already? I know. I'm Jillian. It's about Hamilton, an American musical. Maybe you've heard of it. And I also create things. I have a web series with my husband. It's called The Residuals. It's about actors who do commercials and that whole audition process based on our insane real life experiences auditioning for commercials in New York City. And I, my, I have a couple of podcasts. My first podcast is called Theater people we interview like big broadway stars lynn manuel miranda i can't believe that you are here thank you it's nice to be here i'm sorry uh, i make a podcast called broadway backstory which is like a documentary style podcast that finds out how a show goes from an idea to a full production um i make a podcast for disney but mostly we're just like theater nerds that are obsessed with true crime yeah i want to tell the listeners like what this why we're doing this and, okay. like what the idea behind the podcast is so for me I'm literally the guy that like scout literally like once a week will go to Google and be like, what are the 15 best true crime documentaries on the internet? And I've literally seen them all, but I'm just like re-googling it to like hope that there's a new one. And so my idea for this podcast was like, A, let's have a place to talk about these things and B, let's help other people like find these things. Yeah, because there are so many things out there, and it is always nice to find someone else that's into this yes, kind of thing, totally. so you don't feel like a creep exactly. talking about like what your search history is, how it's like, just true crime documentaries and murders and it, right, exactly. Things. I swear, I'm not a serial killer. No, me neither. No, I just I'm totally really not like one. talking yeah. about them. Is that weird? <laughs> Um, shall we talk about the imposter? Can we please talk about the imposter forever? I have to tell you a couple of creepy things. Number one, I've seen this movie a million times. It's one of my go-to um, things to watch when I just need to watch, when I need my true crime fix and uh, there's nothing new. <laughs> he disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. When a child is missing for years... Either the child is dead or the child is not found. He was tortured. I mean, he had torture written on. This kid's really messed up. There was just something wrong about it. Something was being hidden, and I didn't know what that was. The FBI is not taking this case lightly. There was something going on more than meets the eye, of course. He couldn't speak English without an accent. Maybe he's not Nicholas Barclay. He cannot be an American. We didn't need to prove who he was. This is their family member. I mean, no one would be wrong about something like that. Wait a minute. 
Okay, I'm gonna. I wrote a little script, listeners, about to like sort of give you. If you haven't heard, if you haven't seen this movie, a go watch it. B, we are going to give spoilers. I, this movie came out in 2012. If you haven't seen it yet, pause. If you want to go watch it, come back and listen. Or I'm gonna tell you what it's about. Yeah, and they kind of the spoilers like from the beginning of the right movie anyway. Yeah. So it's not. Um, are you ready for me to read my script? Yes. All right. So, The Imposter is a documentary from 2012 directed by Bart Layton that deals with the 1994 disappearance of 13-year-old Nicholas Barclay from his neighborhood near San Antonio, Texas. I told him to be home by dinner and gave him five bucks to go play basketball. And he took off. And that's what's the day, the last time we heard from him. The documentary isn't really about the disappearance of Nicholas Barclay. It's much more the story of a French man named Frederick Bourdain, who in Spain, three and a half years after the kidnapping, assumes Nicholas's identity, successfully convinces both the Spanish authorities and Nicholas's family that he's the long lost missing kid. I knew that I could pass myself for anyone and could convince anyone of anything. He's given an American passport. I mean, it's crazy. At that point, I didn't see how I could not document him as a U.S. citizen. Nicholas's sister goes to Spain to get him and brings him home, where he's embraced by the Barclay family as Nicholas. Despite the fact that he looks nothing like Nicholas, he's like four years older than Nicholas would be, he can't speak English without a foreign accent, and has no memory of the family or the town. He had changed so much. It it was like mind-boggling. But then I realized, you know, you, you tell yourself, well, he's been through all this horrendous stuff so he's absolutely going to be different oh and despite the story he's concocted about where he's been and the horrible things that have happened to him and why he looks and sounds different from from the nicholas they remember it doesn't take very long for the fbi to prove that he is not nicholas you know i don't know who he is but the person who was i was interviewing could not have been nicholas park and when that happens the family So nuts. When that happens, the family is genuinely surprised and devastated. We learn that this guy's name is Frederick Bourdain, and he, it turns out, had actually been shocked that the family had accepted him as Nicholas. And once he was busted, he had a theory about why they had. I didn't need to be Colombo to put all the pieces together. They killed him. He, his theory was that the family had killed Nicholas and hidden the body. So when a person showed up claiming to be Nicholas, they had to go along with it to avoid suspicion. And in the end, it seems, the FBI agrees with him. I do feel like that the family knows the whereabouts of Nicholas Barclay. They ultimately were unable to prove it. And this guy is like a master manipulator. He yeah. was wanted by Interpol. He yeah. did this, I mean... 20, 30 times over, and he would always use the same horrible story of... The Abuse military and neglect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the military like kidnapped. According, this is a fake story. This didn't happen. The military like chloroformed him, threw him in the back of a van, yeah. took him out of the country without a passport, right? Because he never had a passport, according to him. Dyed his eyes a different color. Yeah, forced it, made him not speak English. Sexually abused him and all of these boys as like a child sex ring. Yeah. And that was his explanation, like, oh, I don't look like Nicholas because they dyed my eyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And hair. And I have an accent because I couldn't speak English anymore and I'm, like, so traumatized. And and if that really happened, like, hell yeah, you'd be a wreck. However, he admits 
almost instantly that it was not true. Right. So one of the reasons we know all of this um, is because, like, basically, from the beginning, Frederick is, like, the main interviewee. Like, his interview is one of the main interviews in this documentary that is used to tell the story. He's the narrator. He's the narrator. So I wanted to ask you, like, this is what I want to talk about. It's like, how do you feel... This person did this horrible thing. And if the family isn't guilty of murdering Nicholas, he has re-traumatized this family. And, you know, this documentary has given him a platform to sort of, in a sort of like a whimsical way, tell this tale. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Well, yeah, he's very disarming. He's yes. very, like, I don't want to use the word charming. I don't want to do it. Yeah. But he's, you're kind of just like, wow. How, I mean, the confidence of this guy to just lie to everybody is insane. So I, I think it's kind of brilliant to have him as the storyteller because it makes the viewer question constantly how accurate is what he's saying to me right now? Because So that's a big thing that, that I wanted to talk about was like we, we are told from the beginning that this guy is just a liar. Yeah. Why are we to believe anything of the story that he tells us? The most important thing for me and what I learned very fast was to be convincing. So, for example, we we are told that when he when he's discovered in a phone booth in the pouring rain, at this point he says he doesn't know anything about Nicholas Barclay. He's just trying to get shelter. He says he's had this horrible life growing up. No one's ever loved him. He just wants to be like taken to a shelter. He's too old. He's twenty three. So he's pretending he's like in a big coat and he's in a hat that he's pulled down over his head and he's just going to tell the police that he's like a runaway. He just doesn't know what, what, what to tell them. I wanted to provoke on them a sense of guilt, of being adults and to be close to a kid which is dead scared. When you see a kid that, you know, get nervous reflexes, that you can't touch him, you can't approach him, then you understand. You understand that something is wrong. So the, he gets what he wants. He gets taken to this... Hot, this like chill, this children's shelter where he fits in and feels good, but then it's made clear to him quickly that he needs to produce identification of who he is, and of course he can't do that. Um, and he just quickly, according to him, comes up with this story that he's from the United States, and they need to leave him alone in the office overnight so that he can make contact with the United States. Like he tells this story about how he convinces them. To leave him in the office of this children's shelter overnight alone by himself, where he then tells us that he then starts calling the United States, basically looking for a missing children's case, they, right. like a, like the, a case of a missing kid that he can then pretend to be. And he gets he calls one police precinct and another police precinct, and then somebody connects him to the Bureau of uh, Missing and Exploited Children, where somebody says maybe you're Nicholas, maybe it's Nicholas Barclay. And that's when he discovers that this kid is missing, and that's when he decides to assume this identity. But to me, I'm just thinking, like, there's no fact-checking here. Like, we don't see anybody say, like, yes, we checked with the with the shelter, and, and they, they concur that this is how this all happened. Right. And, like, why wasn't he fingerprinted or something? Why didn't the authorities try to do everything they could to identify him? They have this kid. He's a runaway. Like, they could have solved it right there. To find out if he was a missing child or something. Like, why didn't they do anything like so that? So this is another question is, what do you think about the choice that was made by the documentarians to not fact check? To just let this guy tell his story and and we take it for what it's worth? Yeah, I think it's to show how good he is at what he does. As right. crazy as that is. And not to celebrate it, but just to show, like, 
this is exactly what this guy is. Because instead of explaining it, let's just see it in action. I described myself. Every details I gave was details that I know that I could handle. I wanted to be vague enough for her to look at many different things. I wanted her to have many possibilities. Let me just take a look here. I got maybe something, she said. Maybe, you know, we got a kid from San Antonio missing since June 13, 1994. His name is Nicholas Barclay. I said, could you send me a fax of, uh, of what he looked like? In my head, I was just a police officer with, with, with Nicholas Barclay next to me, trying to confirm his identity, and like any other policeman would do. Let's see if it's him. Another choice that they make in this documentary is to have the interview, like like a standard documentary where you have an interview with this guy and the family members and whatever, but then you also see like Hollywood-style, cinematically produced scenes with actors playing mm-hmm. these people. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. What do you think about, like, was it effective? Why do you think they did it? I think it was... Good storytelling. Usually I can go either way. Usually those those reenactments are like, oh, it's so obviously a reenactment. But it works really well for, yeah. for me for this. And I think it's to short to I think it's to show his story instead of just him with that smirk on his face the whole time. Well, and I <laughs> my thinking is that especially in the beginning, when again, you know, this this beautiful cinematic shot of him in a phone booth in the pouring rain, and he has this he has this whole story that he's telling the camera as himself, saying that he wanted to not talk very much, to look small, to look um he wanted the cops to plant the seed in their own heads that this is an abused kid mm-hmm. because if they if that happened they would care about him and they would be on his side i wasn't the one who was telling them i've been sexually abused i made them ask me that by my attitude by my way of doing things they were the one who were thinking about it and that gave me power it'd be one thing if this guy is just telling you that he did this but when you're actually seeing a scared looking boy in a big coat in the rain it's so much more effective I think in order for this movie to work you as the viewer needs to really feel for him and identify with him because he chuckles a lot and he smirks and if you like you were saying you didn't want to say charming if you find this person charming you're a monster unless you find him charming and you you don't even realize that you've started to care about him. Right. And just what he did just on paper, love him or hate him, it's fascinating it what is he fascinating. did. And what's what you were just saying, it just sort of hit me. The reenactments are only his side of the story. There's not a reenactment with 14-year-old Nicholas. That right. doesn't exist. Yeah, you're right. It's just him in Spain. It's just him in the the children's home. It's just him getting the tattoos that yeah. a 14-year-old had. Yeah. And then they go real footage of him getting off the plane, like the whole movie so, of him getting off the plane and meeting this family. That was one of the one of the questions I had too. Were like, what were the really effective moments in this? And what ends up happening in the story is that they call the family, and the family sends the sister to come and get him, Carrie. Carrie, which we need to, we need to talk about Carrie. Oh, Carrie. I am obsessed. She thought with it was Carrie. real cool. They had Coke in Spain. <laughs> we stopped for a Coca Cola. Which I thought was really cool. They had Coke there, and it was the. I'm no judgment here, but when I I was like, this this (laughs) this could be a person who would think that her brother, like this non brother, is her brother. I think she thought it was real cool. They had Coke there. (laughs) 
I know. I, she is such a character, and we'll get back to her. But, you know... Going through this whole process, you see him trying to transform to make himself look like Nicholas, and then they finally they finally show the picture, his passport picture, and it is so jarring because, I mean, it is so it's just the most jarring thing. And then the next thing you see is the footage of him getting off the plane with his sister, and and it's because we know as an audience that that's not him. We know that the family he is expecting that the family is going to take one look at him and be like, "You're not Nicholas." He has a hat, sunglasses, a bandana. <laughs> like he is it's so obvious that he doesn't want to be seen. Yeah. But at the same time, he's been traumatized, remember? Mm-hmm. He was like totally covered up. So then I got scared. Thinking none of this kids really messed up. Just by his appearance. That footage of him getting off the plane is some of is one of the most effective things I think I've seen in a doc in like one of these true crime documentaries. Because it's like he he is as shocked as the rest of us that it's working. Yeah, and at it the first time, or maybe even the you can answer this as someone who's seen it so many times, <laughs> but I've only seen it a few times. But and at first you're like, wait, is this a reenactment? Oh no, right, this yeah. is the actual home movie oh my god and then it hits you again because we haven't seen anything real yet right totally we've just seen these reenactments from his point of view and his smirk so then when you see him with this like poorly dyed blonde hair and the sunglasses and the bandana and the hat and the (laughs) jacket and everything and you're like this is real that's really carrie and that's really the mom and all these people um but one of the other things I was going to say, one of the other things, like one of the other moments from the movie that really stands out to me is when Carrie meets him for the first time at the at the shelter in Spain and you get two sides of the story. You get him saying, she showed me picture. She showed me picture after picture after picture. And of course, I wasn't going to know who anybody was. And she's driving home like, you remember, this is grandma. And you like, as though she was like, from his perspective, trying to like, someone's going to ask you about this and you need to pretend that you know the answer. And then you get her side of the story, which is just that like, she's reuniting with her brother and she just wants to hold him and like be with him. And, you know, that's the point in the, in the documentary where you have to start to make the decision that the family knows or they don't know that this guy is an imposter. Yeah. Now I think it would be, if it was someone in my family, now I'm not a parent, but if it was someone that I am related to, even though I hadn't seen them in four years and I know or I'm, I'm told that they've been through this absolutely horrible, nightmarish four years, I feel like I would know. There would be at least a little pang or a little voice inside my head saying, this feel, I want it to be him. I want to have my brother back, my this back. But is it? You know, it's funny, too, because it seems like a simpler time. It seems like nowadays there would be no question that you would question whether or not this was really the kid. But at the time, it seemed like no. But it's like everybody, you know, all of the authorities had an idea that maybe it wasn't him, but nobody really wanted to push it. The family holds tight to their thought that, like, it was definitely him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just to circle back to the pictures, like the pictures end up being the thing because the one person who doesn't believe him is the judge who has to sign his passport to let him leave the country. Right. And... And so he's presented with these pictures that his sister has just shown him, he says, over and over and over Coaching again. Coaching him, perhaps. Yeah. We went to the visit room and she showed me dozens of pictures, 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 pictures. 
you remember this was with mom at the, at the house we were living in before you, you went missing. Remember this was uh, when you were playing with Scotty. You remember this was... Uh, and he can name everybody in the pictures, and that's how she decides that this must be Nicholas, and they let him come back to the United he States. He only got, like, one thing wrong. Yeah, right. But if he's been traumatized, remember? Exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, that. that's what happens. Yeah. Okay, so sort of just, to, like, round out what happens. Like, he gets back to the States, and is sort of, like, just assumed this life, and it's just, like, you see, like, everyone saying that he's just, like, sort of trying to fit in, and he's, like, meeting a girl that he's interested in, and going to school. He's 23 years old, and yeah. going... To school. But the one person who is like insistent on interviewing him as soon as possible is FBI agent. Wait, what is her name? Nancy Fisher. <laughs> Nancy Fisher. First of all, my, one of my favorite things that happens in this documentary is that the very first time we hear about Nancy Fisher, you see it's one of those like fake Hollywood like remake moments where you just see sensible heels. <laughs> clacking down the floor like she's got a meeting to get to oh yeah and does she ever (laughs) that nancy fisher oh my god one of the first things i said to her was when the fbi and the u.s state department assist you and uh get you and your brother back here i have to interview him immediately Love but her. she is no nonsense with her bob and her yeah. like sensible work clothes. She is no nonsense and she like wants to she wants to like question him. And she seems and now Nancy seems to be the first person to be like uh maybe not him like he's got a dark beard and he looks way older than a 17 year old would look and he, he has doesn't a have french blonde hair accent. and a french accent. But like even Nancy like, he tells his story to her about all of the horrible things that were done to him. And for all intents and purposes, she believes them. And at one point, she's like, who am I to tell this family that they're not related? And I'm like, you're the FBI, Nancy. That's who you are. I thought I didn't have a right to question, you know, their statement that this was their family member. Because how could, how could they be wrong? I mean, no one would be wrong about something like that. Like, if anyone right. has any right to tell these people that I'm so sorry to tell you this but this is a ma- like he's a, a mass imposter who's been who's wanted by Interpol and who does this on the regular like you Nancy just tell them that was the but only she's like nah. like who am I to yeah. break this family's heart I'm like you're Nancy Fisher of the FBI right. with your sensible heels and your bob get, right. get the job done Nance and then and then Nancy gets on a plane with him takes him to Houston of all places mm-hmm. to like get him a like a a forensic test. The family uh, was told that the reason we were taking Nicholas to Houston was because he'd been through trauma. So he deserved to see a forensic expert to deal with the trauma. And like, it literally takes the doctor... Dr. Bruce Perry. (laughs) Who's also not taking any shit from anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Bruce Perry has like a minute for this guy. (laughs) And he's like, no. I introduced myself and as he spoke back, immediately my... Something in me just said, this is not right. This, there's something wrong here. And almost instantly, he's like, he doesn't exhibit any symptoms of someone who's been through trauma. Next. <laughs> and right. Exactly. Exactly. And he's also like, you know, and this is good, useful information where he's like, there's no way a person who was raised for the first 14 years of their life in an English-only speaking household would not be able to speak English without an accent. That's like the major tell for this guy. Right. And because at this point, like the formative years are kind of over or ending while he's 
in this supposed nightmare yeah, life. Right. So he would, there's no way that he would just like forget how to sound right. like he's from New Mexico. That and meanwhile, like the imposter kid is like, I know. Like, he's <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I feel like he said to, like, to Dr. Perry, he's like, totally right. Like, <laughs> he's like, how, why are they still believing this? This is so crazy. I know. So, but so then Nancy calls Carrie, the sister, who we have to devote an entire episode of this podcast oh my to. God, Carrie. But Nancy finally, the FBI lady, is like, come around. To like, she's like, okay, this is definitely not him. She calls Carrie the sister and she's like, literally does the monologue from Night Mother where she's like, sorry. And I said to her, Carrie, Dr. Perry has just stated that this person cannot be your brother for the fact that he cannot be an American. This could be a very dangerous person. She shrieked our screams and said, oh my gosh. So I says, don't be at the airport. You know, I'll handle it. I'll, I'll take care of this individual. And that she did not have to take him home, you know, back to her home to live with him. And she says, okay, okay. The sister's like, okay, Nancy, like, I'm not going to take him home. And then meets him at the airport. Carrie is acting like she didn't have a conversation with Nancy where Nancy's like, right. you in danger, girl. Like, <laughs> totally. Like, you don't know. You could be. Why did Carrie not just say, you know what, Nancy? Thanks for the phone call about that it's not Nick, but yeah. I'm going to go. Di- we're going to go in a different direction. She just acted like it never happened. And yeah. that's weird. And it's also, true. this is creepy. Yeah. And just for your own well-being. And don't you want to really know what happened to your brother? Yeah, exactly. Which is so tragic that we don't know. We don't know. But so then so then the family continued. They, they just go on like, like nothing happened. Right. And that's train. when Nancy is like, well, I'm going to get some blood work and some DNA samples and the family just says no my favorite is like the disparity in the stories Nancy this like mild mannered FBI agent is like the mother not only wouldn't give me a blood sample she laid down on the ground Mrs. Dollar Hyde said this is my son I don't have to provide blood samples for you for DNA and she laid down on the floor literally laid down on the floor uh, and said no and you can't pick me up and you can't make me and then it cuts to the mom she's and she's like, like I have no recollection of doing that <laughs> I did not want to go anywhere with the FBI, but I don't remember refusing. Like, that's when it starts, like, what is going on with this family? Don't you want to know who these military people are? So like, here's they, my thinking. They didn't, like, want to know anything. It's weird. I have a couple of theories as to why the family acted the way that they did. Okay. So it's the family, just to be clear to the listeners, the family, like, even after they were told that Nicholas, that this guy was not him, they, like, went on acting like he was. So a couple things. Either they killed Nicholas and are hiding it. I have a lot of reason to doubt that. Okay. Number one, I like everybody says about all of these true crime things, from serial to everything else, no family who is guilty is going to invite a film crew into your life to like reinvestigate. Um, number two, they the emotions are so real and raw. You know, mm. when Sister Carrie like talks about really being confronted with the DNA evidence that this is not her brother, she is like reliving her devastation of like finding that out. The first feeling was complete sadness because it wasn't Nicholas, which took us back to square one. Where is Nicholas? That was the first one. Second emotion was... Uh, How could I be so fucking stupid? I mean, seriously. I mean, my God, I'm kind of a dummy. I feel like this could happen to me. Like, I feel like if something happened 
and God forbid something happened to somebody that I loved and they were gone for four years. And then everybody from the ambassador to Spain to the FBI is saying like, no, this is him. Like we don't just give American passports to people without (laughs) heavy vetting, Mm. especially nowadays. Uh. Um, I I can see me being like, I don't really think it is, but I'm going to just go along with it. Like just like out of like, out of fear of being wrong. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Cause you've been trying, arguably you've been traumatized too for these four years. Maybe it's not clearly the same as whatever the story was or, but it's still trauma for you to live every day of your life, hoping you get the phone call and then you finally get it. Yeah, exactly. 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 And then, you know, and then, and then God forbid, who knows, maybe like, maybe somebody in the family did kill him. And like, Jason, the brother. Jason, the brother. Yeah, well, Jason only really comes into it in the end when the imposter is like running to the FBI with his theory Mm -hmm. that the family killed Nicholas and they're and they're and they're covering it up that Mm -hmm. Jason, the older brother, killed him. I mean, the only thing we know about what happened to Nicholas is that according to the family, Nicholas's mom gave him five dollars to go out and play basketball. And a couple hours later, he called saying he wanted to come home. And the older brother, Jason, answered the phone. The mom was asleep. He didn't want to wake her up. He's like, sorry, kid, you got to walk home. And no one ever saw him again. Right. There's no witnesses. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. nobody. And, you know, according to the mother, the story, Nicholas's story never even made it, made the news, you know? Yeah. Um, which is devastating. We should point out he dies. Like Jason yes. dies of a drug overdose. Right. And some people claim that maybe it was suicide. Maybe he had, you know. I do think it's possible that Jason could have killed Nicholas and nobody in the family knows. They don't mm-hmm. believe it or maybe they believe it on some level. Um, so I don't think that the mother has to be in on it. You know what I mean? I think that yeah. they, I think there's a part of them that could suspect that, but you know, sister Carrie makes a great case. She's like, well, all of a sudden, like they're pinning it on Jason and he's the perfect person to pin it on. Cause he's not here. Mm-hmm. You can't question him. Yep. You know, just say that Jason did it and we can like close the case. Just show me one piece of evidence. Show me one thing that will lock anybody in our family up over this. Just one shred of actual proof. Can we talk about Carrie now? Yeah. Um, Carrie, I love her so much. And like Carrie is such a sympathetic character in this in this movie to me because she seems at first you're like, oh, she's kind of dumb. And then like she clearly isn't. But she like says things like, you know, they told me that he was in Spain. And I was like, you know, Spain? Isn't that like across the country? Um, I know. And at the same time, I'm kind of like. I'm not going to judge someone who's being no, interviewed about this Their terrible thing. Their brother's horrible disappearance. I misspeak all the time. I know. When I'm talking about things that are not yeah. even a fraction yeah. or a sliver of importance. Well, and then, like, she's I the just one... said it. Did you hear that sentence? <laughs> that was not a, an actual sentence. So but she like does the heavy lifting. Like when Nicholas she, is, all she like, rises to the occasion. She goes there to get him. You know, like she takes on all the responsibility yeah. for this. Even when she says like she's like I had never left the country before. I didn't even know like what was entailed what was involved with that. Right. And it seems like it's all of it is so honest and so um she seems like a lovely person. She seems like somebody that I would like want to know. Yeah. I tried to find her on Facebook. Really? Yeah. I love that you call her sister Carrie, by the way. <laughs> so Amazing. anyway, that's the imposter. I'm obsessed with it. Wait, do you have more to say? Yeah. Uh Private investigator and jazz legend Charlie Parker. So there's this PI who is involved. His name is Charlie Parker. My name is Charlie Parker. I'm a private investigator. Hey, how are you doing? And that name just cracks me up. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Jazz legend Charlie Parker is now involved in The Imposter. He gets involved because he was hired by... um... Hard copy. How 90s can you get, right? 
tonight on Hard Copy. He disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. Nick Hard Copy wants to talk now. to Nick because at least someone in the story wants to get to the bottom of this military yeah. operation that is doing this supposedly terrible, terrible things. Totally. So Charlie Parker is now obsessed with the fact that Nick is not Nick. Knows like well, from the beginning. He figures it out because of the ear comparison. Which is insane. It's crazy. And I don't know if that's really a thing, but he was like, there's apparently ears are like fingerprints. Something was wrong. I said, can you get me a picture of his ears? I need to get, get that. And I knew the ears were a, a, a means of identity for, for almost like fingerprints. When I got back to the office, I put the pictures in Adobe Photoshop. They they were different ears. And so I knew right away that, that absolutely he was not Nicholas Barclay. So Charlie Parker may be like, he's totally obsessed with the fact that Nick is dead yeah. because of his family. Right. Like Charlie Parker has no patience for any of it. I see a lot of myself in Charlie Parker. <laughs> Like, I definitely see me, because he's, like, talking about how he's, like, sitting outside the house, like, writing down license plate numbers of, like, who's going to visit. I'm like, I could see myself going down a rabbit hole like that. Yeah, and also, he just starts digging in a, a backyard. So he goes to the, the house where where they lived when Nicholas went missing. Right. And it's a new owner that apparently he, Charlie Parker, called the night before. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm like, coming over with a, a shovel. There a body in your backyard. You might come over with a shovel. And of course, My, by the way, Charlie Parker is in no shape to no be doing shape. some digging. And I love how this neighbor just totally put fuel on the fire. And he was like, yeah, my dog sniffs around that area a lot. When we first got my dog, he was always digging in the back corner over there where the, the tree is. And one day I was mowing and saw pieces of like plastic, kind of like a tarp kind of material okay. sticking out of the ground. I tried to pull it up to, to get it out and it just kept ripping on me as stuck on the ground. So I never paid any attention to it, never gave it any thought until last night when we were speaking on the phone. And you could see Charlie Parker light up like a Christmas tree. He's like, yes. And the bush has been there a while. And then he digs, and there's, yeah. like, footage of them digging, and there's nothing there. Well, so a couple of things on that. The last shot of the movie is the only real-life non-recreation that has obviously been directed. Oh, for so sure. So Charlie Parker is standing, holding a shovel, looking at the ground. You hear the sound of digging happening. Oh, my God. And as the camera pans up, which requires equipment. Like, the documentary crew had to, like, make put equipment and, like, test the shot. Like, this was not mm-hmm. – this was, this was a, a directed moment. And they, like – Pull up and you see the poor guy who owns the house with his shirt off. Like in the ditch. In, like three feet down in the ditch. And then it's just like uh, the missing person case has been closed. Or right. the, the homicide case. Yeah. The missing person case right. is so still open. It goes to like titles at the end of the movie. And, and the homicide case has been closed because of lack of evidence. Yeah. So he, Nicholas is still a missing person. What do you think happened? I don't know. It's know. a terrible answer, but I, I don't know. I don't think they have it in them to get away with murder. My best guess is that maybe it's the brother. The brother maybe had something to do with it. I feel like just like for the record, we should say like we laughed a lot during this because this is a ridiculous story, but we don't forget that this really is about a missing 12 year old boy named Nicholas Barclay, right? Yeah. It's tragic. And part of the insanity and what makes this documentary so fascinating is that it's sort of very sadly turns the attention to, Frederick, this this imposter. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, this family went through a lot of trauma and Nicholas is still out there somewhere in some way. And that's sad. I just, I feel like in the end, no one's looking. We're never going to have an answer for this. Like, it's, we're, we're just never going to know. The trail has gone cold, as they say. Yeah.
my God. Thank you so much for listening to episode one. We did it. We did it. Jillian, do you have any information for our listeners? Yes. Please check out truecrimeobsessed.com. That'll give you all the information on the show, links where you can follow us, tweet at us at truecrimeobsess, no ED. And if you have any suggestions of things you want us to cover, email us truecrimeobsessed at gmail.com. And you can download episode two right now. (gasps) What are you waiting for? Do it. Before the ghost eats my daughter. Oh my God! (laughs) (laughs) No! (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.